0: hi everybody derek here i'm going to keep this intro short once again because this is a long one today it hits the two-hour mark it's a long discussion with uh, a man named sean mishka m-y-s-z-k-a and sean is one of the world's top movement specialists um he is uh he's a personal performance advisor and movement skill acquisition coach. And he works with a lot of NFL players. Uh, he's been doing that since about 2008. I think he works with like half a, or a, a dozen players every year. Um, he hosts his own movement skill conference. Um, so he's really, really into this. He, he also operates this uh, football specific movement blog called football beyond the stats. And uh i like you should go check this out I, stu's tweeted out some videos from this before where he he breaks down uh the movement skills of of some of the top performers in the NFL every week and he comments on it and he and he posts it on the blog it's pretty cool um but most importantly he has his own site called emergentmovement.com uh it's spelled and this is important uh, movement is spelled M-V-M-T in that. So it's E-M-E-R-G-E-N-T-M-V-M-T.com. It's uh, almost as bad as evil track sport. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's important to get that right when you're searching. Because he's got a lot of really cool courses and a lot of really cool content and very reasonable uh, in terms of the pricing uh, on his website, and there's a ton of stuff there that I think you would be interested in. You can also find him um, at 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 Movement Miyagi on Twitter. He's not on Instagram or, like uh, probably not Facebook, but he he's he says in the in the discussion that um, that he's only on Twitter. Um, so. A little bit about this before before I launch it here is that um, after the last podcast with Stu, which I got really excited about, uh, opened up my eyes to a few things that I've been uh, that I haven't either bothered to learn or have forgotten and and ignored for a long time. Um, And it's been an interesting last uh, week or two uh, in my coaching. And so he put me on to Sean after we had the discussion, Sean and I talked a bit and he agreed to come on the podcast and in preparation for it, I set up a a bunch of notes and some topics that I wanted to to discuss with him. Uh, he was very, very into it. He's a great guest. He's just a, well, you'll, you'll get that when you listen to it. Um, and then right before it, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to, let's, I went back to him and I said, "Hey, listen, let's change this a bit. Let's do this more like more like myself, um, picking your brain about where I'm at in terms of learning because I'm working with beginners again, and you know how can I be more effective as as a coach." So the whole the whole discussion is around uh, teaching hammer throwers and the hammer has a very unique. Uh, some really unique properties to it in terms of how you teach it and the dynamics of the event. And I go deep into that. So I'm warning you, it's a bit hammer heavy. And there's parts where I do go on for a fair amount because the, and that was planned between Sean and I because I want, we wanted it to be organic. He didn't want to know any of this beforehand. All I did was send him some videos to watch of Sadiq Litvinov and Koji Murfushi. And, um, and then we just, we just have this organic talk about, you know, where I present, look, these are the challenges to coaching the hammer. It's very unique. Um, And, you know, how do I, you know, what's the best approach? And I got it in terms of, you know, uh, from someone who has worked with athletes who usually have come, or at least the older athletes that I've worked with, the more advanced athletes have come to me with a, a technical base and but now I'm working with straight-up beginners uh, for the most part and um, you know like how 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 can I take some of these concepts that Sean has and apply it to what I'm doing um, it's a bit self-indulgent in places but I think you'll get I think you'll get a lot out of it a lot of it's based around the, all the, the concepts of ecological dynamics and Bernstein's dexterity theory and Sean's coming back on the podcast and we're going to go specifically deep into some of those ideas. Uh, they come up here, but we don't actually explain it. Although he does, like you you will understand what all that, if you're not familiar with it, you'll understand what all that means as you listen to the conversation. I think it's, I think it's quite good. I'm quite proud of it. So I won't hold, I, I won't keep you here any longer. So for better or for worse, here is Evil Chat number 26 with... Movement specialist Sean Mishka. Sean Mishka, how are you, man? I'm doing
1: well, buddy. Uh, it's good to finally see you face to face. Obviously, after conversing in the way that we did, and and obviously hearing a bit about you, uh, over the years, here from our mutual good friend Stuart McMillan. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure. Wow, well, don't <laughs> he talk shit. But he he does. He has a tendency to do that. He he drew a line in the sand with me just last night when I tried to share something with him. You know how he gets. He's just a cranky old man at times.
0: Yeah, he can. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes a little he comes across as snobbish sometimes, right? You know, like (laughs) just a little he's not. But he, you know, so he, uh, yeah, well, he's, he's, he's a, a, he's a guy. teddy bear as we know. Yeah. He, he,
1: is. he is actually a teddy bear at heart. Yeah, and there's uh, another name for that, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm anyways. glad that you get to see all the sides of stew, uh, just as I do as well. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. I've seen all this. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've seen some, yeah. Yeah. One, one day I'll show you some of the, uh, some of the messages I get from them. They're pretty interesting, but anyways. So what's what's the weather like up there? You're uh, you're in Minneapolis, right? I am in
1: Minneapolis, and it is a little warmer than it has been here over the last five to six days. I think right now we have something like four ish, four degrees Fahrenheit, four above zero. I um, no what that <laughs> is what is that? That's that's pretty cold, though. That's like that's minus, pretty cold. That that's yeah. pretty cold. But um, you know, it, it's supposed to be warming up here over the course of today, and then. Uh, we just came out of a real, real cold front and uh, you know, my dogs won't go outside and, and uh, I barely want to go outside. And this is the time of the year where
0: I end up questioning myself as to why I live where I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I hear you, man. I hear you. I actually, that, dude, I, I, you know what? I think we, there's a million little rabbit holes cause I would, I, one question I always find interesting to ask people in Northern environments, not that I want to go down, this rabbit hole, but I, uh, what the hell I'm going to (laughs) ask, how do you find the, um, an environment like that impacts coaching and coach development, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, uh, I always tell young coaches when they're asking me, you know, who, who to study as a coach. And if if you're going from a results-based perspective, you know, I, I always say, you know, look, look at coaches in Northern environments because of the challenges that, you know, that they have to face are just, you know, they're just, it it makes them get, become more, uh, you know, they have to be able to adapt to an environment. They got to get creative and sometimes not all the time, but sometimes from that comes some innovation. You you find the same thing. Yeah, I, I
1: do. And it's, it's something that I've actually meditated upon quite a bit over the last, let's call it handful of years, Uh, Of course, having been in Minneapolis and Minnesota here, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area for a significant period of time now since 2004-2005, um, so it's been a minute and I've been working with National Football League players since 07 exclusively uh, with National Football League players. And of our course, to get them here in the off seasons, you have to present uh, sort of everything that the environment is going to offer to them. And you have to work around that. And a lot of these players, specifically when we're talking about them coming here for a significant period of time and say March and April, uh, it isn't a really easy sell, of course. You know, to to get them to understand or wrap their head around, like, if I could go to Arizona or if I could go to California or if I could go to Florida, why am I going to go to Minneapolis, St. Paul? And obviously, we've had to kind of adapt around that. But the thing that I have found, Derek, is that it actually, uh, yes, it presents some challenges. Of course, we all have challenges that end up uh, constraining us and channeling our behavior in certain ways. But what it does, it actually offers us a platform for the most opportune times of the National Football League season for us to prepare under similar conditions. For example, now this isn't going to be a great example because some of my players were on the losing side last night, Sunday night football last night, Lambeau Field, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, You know, I have a number of Vikings. I actually have a couple of Packers too, but, (laughs) um, you know, they're going and playing in a, in a place where obviously some of these key performance inhibitors are obviously going to bring a reality, a harsh reality, if you aren't really adequately prepared to play under those conditions, right? And so those conditions actually sort of shape the palette that these players are going to have to go and execute and paint with their skill upon. And I think that what we find is that Preparing in March and April, and maybe playing under these respective conditions, practicing, training under those conditions, you sort of start to become more adaptable, being adaptable, like I like to say. Mm -hmm. This idea of adaptability within adaptability is something that I really grasped onto. Uh, Back in 16 and 17, I started to realize like my players were maybe getting a little too, quote unquote, soft Mm -hmm. with their skill, like under perfect or opportune conditions and situations they were behaving and behaving magnificently and then when shit went astray and weather or other key performance inhibitors would enter the mix pressure and anxiety which i think we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about today because obviously that transcends uh from american football
0: into your world of hammer throwing well a lot of what you just said transcends yeah it does right yeah
1: And I think what we find there and specifically, and this was a rabbit hole I'd like to go down with you with, um, is sort of this idea of performing and practicing training under all conditions and actually purposefully intentionally training and practicing under all conditions, Mm -hmm. because it's there that I believe that we actually bring a different level of bulletproofing to the human movement system and the skill execution, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's really the way that I've embraced it here now. Now, it's not to say that I wouldn't love to be in an Arizona, California or Florida or somewhere nice and warm, uh, obviously in the in the season time. But the more that we can actually embrace those conditions, I think the more opportunity we have to actually test the movement skill of performers. And I think we should look to exist there sort of in a Bruce Lee type of fashion of being water kind of flowing with whatever mm-hmm. those weather mm-hmm. conditions bring us. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a real opportunity there for athletes.
0: So for us, it, it, it well, for me, when I've, everywhere I've ever coached it has been a Northern climate. It's mm-hmm. been, um, it's been Canada, uh, Britain, which isn't, I don't know if you call it a Northern climate, but it certainly isn't hot and it's wet. And, and now Chicago in the winter, um, you know, I mean, so those opportunities just present itself. Right. And so we just throw and, you know, I have an indoor throwing, um, set up now here in Chicago where we can throw indoors and do good work that way. Um, that'll come up uh, for sure. But, but, you know, I make the point of going outside once a week or once every mm-hmm. few weeks and throwing outside, regardless of the conditions, Love it. Uh, you know, just part of it's that reason. But I, I would think that in the NFL though, don't they, I mean, you must have to actually purposely schedule that because I got to assume that the NFL has, uh, you know, or an, an NFL team in a Northern climate has taken care of that for you, right? Like everything like, you must have the ideal indoor training. I mean, you know what, I mean, they, they can train inside, right. A full yeah. football pitch or. Yeah.
1: You know. and, and that's a interesting, you know, every, every team kind of treats it a little differently. Um, we see individuals and, and sort of heads of organizations, such as a bill Belichick at the new England Patriots, where he really embraces the conditions and almost requires players knowing that, When push comes to shove and we're talking about November, December football, where the games matter more now, of course, every game matters the same amount to a certain degree, but obviously as we get closer and closer to the NFL playoffs, games mean more pressure and anxiety builds fatigue that is cumulative obviously starts to build all of those types of things into the mix so a bill belichick who obviously is the most uh super bowl winningest coach in the history of our sport um so the greatest coach at least from a results driven standpoint or outcome standpoint um he takes pride in taking players outside you get some players who don't want any part of that whatsoever like so they, they don't want to want to be play part of bill belichick yeah so like in free agency and things of that nature right. yeah, like there's a patriot way they actually talk about the patriot way where you know there's there's this idea that um he's this old gristled vet of course that requires certain things of players but i think that there's a certain intentional purposeful nature to what he does and how he does it mm-hmm. say in contrast it's still an old school minded guy we have a guy down the road at in mike zimmer for the minnesota vikings old school driven guy still under a similar coaching tree with bill uh, bill parcells so he's alongside of bill belichick and they've coached alongside of each other at times they went outside last week and everyone made a big deal of it because they're typically accustomed to going inside but they knew last night they were going to have to play at lambeau field in green bay wisconsin where it was going to be frigid and it's the frozen tundra of, of the national football league right so sometimes people really like almost make it to be this thing like we're we're just doing this out of the norm as opposed Mm -hmm. to making it the norm and kind of
0: expecting it you know especially so we play i'm not sure how valuable the former is i think this the, the, the the latter is far more valuable but yeah it's my own personal opinion
1: yeah, and I would agree with you, especially because, you know, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, I'm sure, throughout the course of our call and, and probably well into the future. This idea that you probably constantly hear me uh, kind of bringing to the forefront, this idea of dexterity, Nikolai Bernstein's idea of dexterity, which is the ability to organize, coordinate or control any movement solution under any emer- to any emerging problem in any situation and in any condition like that's really truly the epitome of skill right to be able to behave in any yeah Yeah. and and of course we're always just chasing it we can never fully you know embrace dexterity and think we're fully dexterous there's always going to be certain problems certain situations certain conditions that actually test us and challenge us and show us the gaps in our movement skill but that that Part of what Bernstein says there in any situation and in any condition, like that part is something that I think in coaching, whether we're talking about track and field or whether we're talking about the most chaotic team sport that we possibly can, a lot of people forget that in any condition part. Mm-hmm. And they just think about the perfect conditions and they train in the perfect conditions and they chase performance totally in there. And well, it, it drives totally. me bananas.
0: Yeah. Hey, but I'm going to throw you a curveball. Do it. Okay. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is interesting because, and I I think I brought this story up on the podcast before, but it's something that I witnessed in the UK. So in, in the UK, uh, going so going going into the 2012 Olympics, you know Dan Path, you must know Dan, mm-hmm. right? yes, of course. So Dan and I ran these two centers, and and uh, that were responsible for you know doling out the services for all their athletes, um, all their program funded athletes going into the Olympics. And, and I was, and I was on the team and I had a girl on the team. So prior to prior to actually going to the Olympics, once they had the stadium finished, they opened up the stadium for a day for all only the UK athletics, the British athletes uh, that were already named to the team And you could go down there and you could do a training session in the stadium. The idea being to get used to that environment and blah, Mm blah, blah. And my girl was the youngest person on the team. And, and that was incredibly valuable for her, you know, to go in there and actually throw in this, in the case. I mean, there was nobody in the place. Mm -hmm. It was just Mm -hmm. like, man, I think they had two, two or three sessions that you could attend, and in our session, there might have been 15 athletes and their coaches that showed up. It was, I mean, it was it was like a church in there, right? It was so <laughs> quiet. But just to be able to do that, I think really helped her. But their top athlete, or at least the top athlete that you know, the big uh the big hopeful going in was a woman named Jessica Ennis. Do you know who Jessica yeah, Ennis mm-hmm, is? Okay, mm-hmm. so Jessica Ennis was going in there. And I, I'm not sure if she had been to an Olympics before, but, but she, she had a really interesting um, way about her, the way that she, you know, trained and the way that she sort of managed her whole training situation. And, and um, of course it's Britain, right? So everything we did was in the media. It was, it was, you know, quite crazy. And going into that Uh, like this became a story that we were all going into the Olympic stadium to practice blah, blah, blah. And, and a reporter asked her about that. And she said, no, I'm not going to go in there. Mm -hmm. And they're like, really? Why? And she said, and I thought this was one of the most brilliant answers. Uh, One of the most insightful, intuitive answers I've ever heard come out of an athlete. She goes, because when I go in there, I want it to be fresh. I want it to be new. Mm-hmm. I want it to be exciting. I thought, oh my God, like that's, that's talk about someone who knows themselves, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and she said, and that's, you know, and get this. Okay. So she's, she trained in a place called Sheffield, right? Mm -hmm, Which was, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, about an hour up the road from us. And we were two hours up the road from London. So she's about a three hour drive from London, the Olympic games. If I I may be, I, I may be a bit wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure the Olympic games was the first time in her career that she had ever competed in London. She had never done a meet in London, not as a kid, not as a junior, not as a high performance or elite athlete ever. It was, so she's this girl Mm -hmm. who's like the darling of UK athletics, the big hopeful. She was the one that the really was the one the media was all over, right. Was going into a home Olympics did not go into the stadium and, and had never competed in London. And, you know, and she walked in there and kicked everybody's ass and won the gold. (laughs) medal. So you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess you know some athletes they just have to understand if they understand, you know, they, they need to know what they need, right? Yeah, there, there's a certain part
1: of something. there. There's a certain part of that, of course. And I love the anecdote there, Derek, because I think it there, There's some things to illustrate in that case study, specifically when we talk about the constraints that influence, impact, or channel the skill that we all, um, of course, see emerge. You know, when we think about skill acquisition from this more ecologically friendly perspective, where we really value the ecology, meaning where the person is performing, the environment that that person is performing in, it becomes this mutual reciprocal natured relationship between that environment and that person, right? I mean, I know that really seems super philosophical to people Mm -hmm. in coaching who are really like driven towards mechanics and driven towards technique. And and just thinking that it's skill is something that is stored in the brain that we've kind of beaten a path towards um, there through repetition after repetition. But this idea of this practical, purposeful, functional relationship between oneself and one's environment, it becomes very individualistic, that relationship, because it is a relationship. That is an intimate one, right? Mm -hmm. Like, especially as a performer going to perform at the Olympics, going to execute upon what they do best at the biggest stage that they possibly can. She knew right there, full fledged, like, this is what I need. I want it to be fresh. And it kind of brings me to a quote that I use really frequently that I'm sure you've heard before this idea of we never stand in the same river twice for we're not the same man. And the river's not the same either. Right. Like this idea, you know, when, when you think about that, like she probably knew if I step in the stadium and I step in this cage and there's only 15 other people there, it's not going to be the same river or remotely the same river anyway. Like, even though your young athlete needed to go there and kind of feel like, Whoa, this is a big, huge space. This other gal or probably other performers as well, if there were only 15 in your respective group, there were probably other performers that felt the same as Enos in that time. Like, I'm going to go in here. It's going to be this, like, I want to take in all of the information Mm -hmm. and everything, all the expansiveness that this holds Mm -hmm. and interact with it in this, my own authentic way, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. that's really kind of some of the things that I take from. Um, particularly Bruce Lee's ideas that you probably see me quoting quite a bit on, on Twitter, because I think it's there that we find this like true, honest, authentic expression. And that's really what skill is. It isn't just about the mechanics being authentic and expressive and individualistic and honest. It's about the relationship between oneself and the competitive environment.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, Hey, uh, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking 41. Okay so okay so I'm 56. I saw Enter the Dragon when it came out in the theaters. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I did. I did. My <laughs> uncle took me. Yeah, yeah, it was really, it was really, yeah, yeah, it was really good. And, and, and the, Think I,
1: about that. There, there's some things in there. I want you to go back and watch it. Actually, we're going to give you a little homework here after this call, because I think what you're going to find when you go back and watch it with this perspective, that you start to see some of those scenes. Think about that monk scene at the, at the beginning where they're talking about the highest technique is they have no technique. The the technique that is going to be like you and Stu talked about a few weeks back, uh, which I love that conversation, by the way, because there was a bunch of different pieces in there that I think all coaches, again, no matter what sport we're talking about, can glean a lot of great information from this idea of skill, really being that which what we're chasing, this facilitation of the skill as opposed to this imparting or imposing of a technical model, per se, in the way that track and field has typically chased in the past. And of course, I was there as well. But I think what you find when you hear Bruce Lee talk about this, he was really like an ecological dynamics junkie at heart well before many of these other ideas were actually being studied and researched and theorized Mm -hmm. in the way that they are by people that I follow now, like a J.J. Gibson and Nikolai Bernstein. Bruce Lee was a living, breathing embodiment of an ecological approach. Mm -hmm. He was constantly talking about, um, you know, to become one, if you will, with the environment or with the problem that's in front of you.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, dude, you just, uh, my head's just going a million miles a minute. Hey, do you, do you listen to music? yeah yeah okay so uh, Stu is a big jazz guy right yeah i have a son that's a big uh that's a jazz jazz uh junkie and drummer and he has uh he has a number of uh really good teachers two of them are in new york one of them is uh, uh amongst people who know um uh who know jazz drumming is considered probably the greatest quote unquote uh, drummer that's living today or one of them anyways and uh he um uh, it, w- it would be wild to get him and you and probably stew on a- on a call to talk Let's about it. this because this guy yeah anyways i won't go down that rabbit hole but i i mean just watching him drum okay is just like it's a whole other level of like i think someone like you would appreciate it. the first time i saw this guy drum uh, I had no idea who he was, but the other teacher sent us to watch this guy, and he was like, he it, it, he he's one of these guys. He's very sort of off the beaten path kind of thing, does his own thing. His music is very eclectic. and and uh, you know, it was this this wall of sound coming at us. We were in the front row in this what you know this very small room, and and so it was very loud. But anyways, i but I kind of like, was just the way he moved i was watching him in, in uh from like like the music was so took us took me so by surprise because it was so it was kind of harsh and kind of like in your face right mm-hmm. it was like it was kind of like a uh a jazz death metal kind of mix like really it's just you know it was harsh so it kind of i I wasn't expecting it and so i don't know it's like one part of my brain the music part kind of shut off but i kind of went into coach mode because watching this guy actually drum was just it was crazy like he would move from one side of the kit to the other and he would hit five different parts of his drum each of, of his drum kick you know like a rim uh, a tom the bell on a ride uh the edge of a symbol and and he would do it all from one from one side to the other and hit each one of them with a different feather or touch and do it so smoothly and effortlessly like you almost didn't see it yeah. and i just remember going oh my god like that's the ultimate flow right and you and remember- think about how
1: much you didn't see that he was actually oh, doing absolutely absolutely think about the all the intricacies all the totally. nuances that you couldn't pick up
0: yeah yeah absolutely so it, it might be i i think he'd probably get on the podcast but it, it would be interesting okay so, i would love to do it i would love to do it there's so many different
1: layers and threads that we can pull on even totally, in that which was totally, you just said.
0: totally but i gotta keep us on track here so let's so so you and i talked to, you know i sent you a bunch of questions and and some i think that a lot of them will come up and then and then, you know, we kind of changed this after thinking of it. And I thought, hey, you know, like, you know, let's let's because this is kind of how the the podcast with Stu played out was we had no idea what we were going to talk about that day. It's the first time that we didn't have a topic. I I didn't have time to get organized. He He's never organized. So we <laughs> so, you know, we just sort of I just hit record. We just started talking. He started asking me about coaching, blah, blah. And we got into that that mm-hmm. whole thing and and that's really probably uh one of my weaker areas and so it became kind of this discussion where he was kind of schooling me on this whole ecological dynamics thing and mm-hmm. and it fit perfectly with where i am in my coaching right now because i don't know uh if you pick this up from the podcast or not but i've you know mostly like i'm i'm i I'm a generalist coach, but over the last decade or so, I've really kind of gravitated toward the hammer and the throws in general. Um, And I was mentored by a very uh, well-known, famous, the Bill Belichick of throws coaching, or one of them. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, And, uh, you know, and I've mostly coached at a higher level. I would say mostly high performance, you know, but but I have brought up development athletes. But now I've just taken a job where I am, I am starting from scratch with athletes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I work with a, a group of disadvantaged kids that are brought to me and, and, and I have, uh, you know, they're not, we, they're not athletes. Uh, like it's not like about their hand picking the talent. They're mm-hmm. kids that are just need to do something coming into the group. And I'm teaching them this, what is probably one of the most complicated skills that you can or techniques that you can uh you know that you can ask a a a kid to try to learn anyone to try mm-hmm. to learn so anyway so that's where i'm at and in the podcast with stu i was kind of like everything he said was making sense and a lot of it not you know a, a lot of it was new concepts to me and a lot of it was stuff that i knew mm-hmm. that i'd abandoned right like i you know i've you know i mean i think any any Uh, how do I put this? Any coach worth anything worth a damn at some point comes to the conclusion that you have to let the athletes figure some shit out Mm -hmm. for themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, but I'm very verbal and sometimes too much. So, right. And uh, so I, you know, and, and I, and Stu, you know, uh, one of the lines out of that podcast was, he's, you know, here we are telling them what to do right we and we do too much of that and i was like oh my god my head was i was like wow yeah it hit me like a hammer Mm -hmm. i was like that's what you know and so then there's one kid in particular that you know like the hammer is a really unique event we're gonna get right into that in a second i promise um it's a really unique event for a lot of ways which i'll go over and but so i have this one kid who just Right from day one, picked it up quite quick, right? And and in fact, almost almost to his detriment, because there's parts of the throw that he's not ready for yet that he just naturally wants to do. And and I, you know, and and so initially he had, you know, in training had really good results, and then it started to drift a bit. And and I was kind of struggling, like I think I was just I was just over coaching him, you know, and mm-hmm. that's another issue, one on one coaching as opposed to group versus anyways, and so uh So I had this podcast with Stu and the next day I went out there and I, and I took the kid and I, and we went for a walk and I said, look, I think I'm, I think I'm giving, I think I'm trying too hard here with you. Like, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm saying too much. I think, I, I think we need to split this where, you Mm -hmm. know, you, I'm going to tell you what I see. I'm going to be a talking mirror and you are going to figure the fuck out out of this right like your own way out of it Mm -hmm. and uh let's see how that goes and i was at work and i sent but you know he warmed up and we we started throwing and i sent Stu a message i i just said three fucking throws and and, And and, he figured it out and he figured it out and i'm like and, and, and Stu's like what and i'm like the kid I was telling you about, I think I told Stu either on the podcast or, or later, I, I said, the kid figured it out he, he went right, he went, he got all of it, 90% of it in three fucking throws. As soon as I took the foot off the gas in terms of my own input, mm-hmm. the kid just, you know, and so anyways, that's where we're going to start. Okay. So, yeah. so Okay, so here's the event. This is what is, this is why I think this would be an interesting discussion. The hammer is closed loop. I don't know if that's the exact term, but you know, it's not. It's not an NFL guy who has to, you know, move and I mean, you know, react, right? You don't react really to any. Well, you can't. You, there, there's argument. Yes, you 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 can react to your own mistakes within a throw, but basically, it's closed loop. You start, you finish. You're trying to, you know, repeat the same thing over and over again uh, in in a competition. But here's the thing. The hammer has a lot of unique things to it. Like uh uh a lot of unique physical elements to it. Number 1, it's one of the few, I can't think of too many sports outside of weightlifting, act like powerlifting or Olympic lifting where you do not leave the ground, okay? Like you it's the only event in athletics where the athlete does not leave the ground, okay? And that really kind of impacts how you're going to teach. I think to me, it does anyways. Um, It's also the only event it's really, I think the only event in athletics that's truly cyclical rotational in that, you know, there is rotational shot. There's discus is rotational. There is a cycle in sprinting all that, but in, in the hammer, you are rotating more than once and it's the same way you rotate right and but the the direction of travel is backwards which is also makes it unique okay um in most in most events in um in athletics anyways you're trying to put force into the ground and I wouldn't say you're trying to put or into an, into an implement like in the shop, but to do that, you got to put force through the ground. And I wouldn't say that you're trying to get off the ground as fast as you can, or you're purposely trying to minimize ground contacts and sprinting or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, Dan path would have a lot of input on that, but basically the faster you know across uh, across examples of athletes the faster that you're on and off the ground the faster you can apply the force the better right in the hammer it's a little different because you're actually trying to stay on the ground and apply force for as long as you can and that's what we call double support when the, when the athlete has two feet on the ground and that's where the ball is is going from a higher point through the lower point. And there's a few other ones that I could get into, but the big, big issue in the hammer, which really makes it different from anything else, and I say this all the time, the hammer is more like the pole vault than it is any other event in athletics. And that's this, not only are you putting force into something, right? So you're putting force into the ground, Uh, in the, in the, in the other throws you're putting, you're trying to put force into an implement because you're Mm -hmm. throwing it in the hammer that implement, you're dealing with another force because as the ball starts to turn, it picks up, you know, there's a, there's a pulling force in the hammer that Mm -hmm. the athlete has to negotiate. In the pole vault, what the athlete does is they store what they call they store energy, quote-unquote, in the pole, which means that they take off and they bend the pole. They get in a, into a position then where when the pole extends, it puts force into them, which, you know, throws them over the bar basically, and they're trying mm-hmm. to get into a position to maximize that. And in the hammer, it's, it's you know, it's kind of the same idea, but it's as they... The faster you move, the more this pulling force is. And that has a real impact on how you teach it, especially to beginners, because you can mimic the positions in a hammer, the actual technical positions, landmarks you want. But without that that pulling force, the actual dynamic of it is completely different. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? You, you it absolutely what I mean? does. Yeah. So... That's the challenge you have with beginners now with, you know, with, with an accomplished athlete, someone that's, which is mostly what I've gotten over the last you know decade or so they've, you know, they've, they've had a, a, they've had, they have a, they have a technique that they've established and really it's about cleaning it up, refining, polishing. But when you start with a beginner in the, in the hammer throw, it's, it's, you, you know, in my belief anyways, is you have a choice to make at some point where you got to abandon or almost abandon some of the classic drills that a lot of people will use because they don't have this because a a lot of the drills you're doing with a stick, you're Mm -hmm. trying to teach footwork, but without that pull of the hammer, it's not the same thing. So that's the setup. Okay. That's the event. And I, I sent you some videos uh, of some, what we call you know classic greats um there's a couple different sort of schools of thought on how this is uh one is yuri sadiq i you know it's sadly two of these guys just passed away in the last two years but oh really okay yeah so there's yuri sadiq which was the three turner i sent mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. there's sergey Litmanoff, which is yep. the four turner and then there's koji murofushi now there which are, i
1: love that video by the way i love that last video yeah uh, yeah he's, he's something then. else
0: he's something else and i think I think Murafushi, I, I, you know, there's a big debate over the schools of thought on this On in terms of technique. It's always sort of the, the t- Sadiq school versus the Litvinov school. And the way, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Like Sadiq, Sadiq is really the closest thing to a perfect, quote unquote, technical model that we have, although he was a three-turner. So that makes it a bit different. Lipinoff that in particular, that video I sent you in particular was, I think his furthest throw ever or what he, it was a world record at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of, he, you know, he misses some landmarks on there big time, but his rhythm was so outstanding. He was so good at moving the ball and so aggressive that he kind of like, he's kind of the antithesis of Sadiq in a lot of ways, although they're very similar. And I think, Murafushi, the Japanese guy, mm-hmm. I think he is the best example of putting those two together, right? So there you go. Those are the, the you know, that's the event in a nutshell. That's the mm-hmm. challenges that someone like me faces going back to teaching beginners. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where do we start?
1: Um, I think this is where we started. Number one, I appreciate you unpacking that at the detail that you did. It's sort of what I had in mind. uh, And I wanted to really be like I mentioned uh, uh, via direct message for those listeners out there. I mentioned to Derek, I wanted us both to be able to be sensitive and sort of adapt around each other's perspective, sort of on the fly here. And I appreciate the way you unpack that. Derek, I would say that I would start by saying this, number one, American football and the, the tasks and the problems that my players face and the players I work with face are more similar than they are dissimilar from that, which what you're suggesting. And here's why.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. And,
1: and, and I'm going to kind of, let me rewind that one more step back and just simply say for you as well as for the listeners out there, I'm going to steal the Bruce Lee idea of Emptying your cup, if you will, for a moment to see what can be absorbed, what can be discarded and what can be added that maybe is uniquely your own or my own uh, to this sort of discussion and some of these threads that we're going to pull upon. When we really break it down, I mean, obviously, how we think about movement behavior what we think, how movement is being controlled, how it's being coordinated, how it's being organized, as well as how skill could be acquired or how motor learning takes place. is obviously going to impact how we coach and teach, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. intuitively obvious. If we could think for a moment to think about movement just a little bit differently. Obviously, I brought up the Bernstein idea of dexterity um, earlier in regards to this idea to solve any emerging movement problem in any situation, in any condition. But part of what Bernstein said about dexterity was this, that dexterity, meaning movement skill, wasn't just in the movements themselves, but it was in the interaction with the problem. And if we start to take a more problem-solver paradigm, meaning how we think, what we believe, and how we attempt to attack the movement skill... If we start to shift that a little bit more to be a more holistic, integrated um, process, as opposed to one just of motor actions and motor system degrees of freedom, that's why I say that it's more alike than it is different when we talk about American football to throwing the hammer or any other uh, event within track and field. And what I mean by that is skill then becomes about this functional adaptive relationship between oneself at that moment in time and all the constraints that we're dealing with as in the problem that's in front of us that problem is going to be speaking to us in certain ways and, and that's really what kind of spoke to me about that which what you were saying about the hammer specifically the pulling force and this information that we're gaining as we interact with the hammer itself
0: you're talking about the athlete trying to perform
1: Bingo, bingo! Yeah. And so it doesn't matter if we're high level or low level. Yes, we want to take them on that place, knowing that there's going to be a bunch of nonlinearity. And obviously, the listeners aren't going to be able to see me drawing um, on my screen as I am mm-hmm. to Derek here. But um, and then when we're talking about navigating the ground and not leaving the ground and and having that double leg support. And so I don't like to think about it between a closed loop or an open loop or a closed activity versus an open one necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think all movement whether it's the hammer, whether it's juking someone, uh, juking a linebacker uh, in the second level um, in American football, or whether it's just us navigating upon the world, everything is a problem-solving activity. And if we think about it like that, if we begin to think about movement behavior like that, then the movement behavior which emerges in any sport is really this problem-solving activity where these movement solutions or this integrated movement problem-solving process does entail intertwined, interwoven processes of perception, intentions, and actions. And it doesn't matter if it's something that is more repeatable or whether it's something that will only take place you know, in a really novel fashion, like an American football juke move, where there's really no two that are ever going to be the same.
0: But uh, a juke move? What do you mean?
1: So like if you're just cutting on someone an agility action, like an evasive action, a linebacker and a running back meeting. Yeah. Dodging, whatever. Bingo, bingo. But these movement solutions there are going to be coupled to specifying information about the problem. And and really people are going to say, okay, well, I'm trying to put too much of a football agility spin upon the hammer here. But if we really think about it, some of the things that you said in there, I like to think about skill as to what is the most masterful, the most skillful, the most dexterous mover, what are they attuning to, meaning what are they sensitive to, and what are they adapting around during that problem-solving activity, and you mentioned a bunch of the things there that I think that we can really kind of highlight our, our emphasis upon here in this conversation to trying to determine, so that pulling force is speaking back to us a lot,
0: right? Dude can i just step yeah, in? yeah go some? ahead jump Stu, in and, and Stu's gonna give me shit for interrupting you but whatever <laughs>
1: um
0: you just fucking nailed it it's it's exactly you you're right what you just said because here's the problem with coaching this event right so when when you get a beginner that starts to throw and i've changed my approach lately to to i basically uh uh i i've i've I used to do this a long time ago, and then I, I went back to, uh, you know, uh, more of a, rather than a whole, uh, trying to teach the event in its entirety from the beginning, I would break it down and teach steps, right, and wait, and wait for one step to be perfect before I, l- I would allow yeah. You know, so in other words, I would teach them how to wind when those were good. I teach them how to enter and do one turn and I wouldn't let them do two turns till they one turn was no, good. they mastered it. Right. Yeah. 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 And then I was <laughs> hanging with a, a, a guy out in New York who I, I did an interview with him. Um, uh, it's on the podcast. Uh, his name uh, is Patty McGrath. He's former uh, Olympian, but he he's these, you know, he, he's probably the top across the board hammer coach uh well one of them in the world now his guy just broke the 27 year old american record a guy a guy that he coached from like 12 years old up and and but he he's kind of like me he coaches right he coaches across the spectrum beginners right Mm -hmm. to the top guys in the world well not that i coach the top guys in the world anymore or have but you know he, he he it's it's not like a lot of the coaches here where you're either a high school coach or you're a college coach or you're an elite mm-hmm. coach. Right. So mm-hmm. anyways, and he does, so he does, and he, he does a very good job of that and he starts everybody off three turns. And we had a discussion about that. He said, he used to do the same thing I did and then he changed. So I went back to this, right. And here's, here's my point here is that because of this pull of the hammer, it really causes issues with teaching positions when Mm -hmm. you're, when they're learning, because, because the pull of the hammer is going to change those positions. So, and the big part of that is when the foot, when you're only on one foot. So when the right foot comes over for a right-handed thrower, when, when you leave double, what we call double support and they go into single support and the hammer is on its way up and the athlete has to counter that you can, not only is the, if you look at the joint angles from a beginner to an elite, is that going to be different? Of course, because the hammer weight's going to be different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the hammer weight's going to be different. The speed's going to be different. The pull is going to be different. So the, 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 so to teach, to try to nail down exact angles there is difficult, right? Because, if you say to them, look, I want you, you know, this is what I want to see. Well, as soon as they start moving the hammer faster, they're going to have, if they try to maintain those, those angles, it's going to fuck them up. So they, Mm -hmm. so they have to, you know, they have to be able to read it. So it's you got to choose your words very carefully when Mm -hmm. you're coaching, not just not so much raw beginners, but once they get to where this kid I'm coaching or one of these kids I'm coaching right now, he's at the stage now where he's, he's got a real throw together And, you know, so if I say to him, you know, okay, I want you to sit back a bit more on this. Well, as he, as the ball accelerates through, he's throwing three turns right now, probably we'll move to four next year. But as he, as the ball starts accelerating, sitting back quote unquote means something different on each turn, because as the ball picks up speed, it it creates more pull. Mm -hmm. And if you try to sit back, the exact same way with the let's say you know let's say in his head he's thinking the same joint angle same position then it's not going to work because no. you have to react to eat the ball pull as it's moving so that's what i wanted to say it's exactly what you just said am i right yeah it is yeah and 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 throughout
1: that integrated movement problem solving process there there's different information that is speaking to us more loudly or less loudly like it's amplified to a certain degree at certain times and it's imperative that perceptually, we are able to navigate that and then adapt around it, right? You kind of mentioned that if somebody's having, uh, they're able to fix their own mistakes within the midst of the throw. The only way to do that is to do global whole activity and all the respective spins, right? All the respective rotations. And I think that's why we find that drills, traditional drills that are maybe more part-based, meaning they only contain a small snippet, a very small snippet of the overall experience. experience have very little lasting transference to the global activity the whole activity and so, and so like it's even if we think about it from a football perspective it, it's the reason why I come down so hard upon agility ladders and cone drills mm-hmm. like it's only the motor action itself and it's removing the perceptual information out in the world that one needs to be sensitive to to guide that action and I think that's what we find with traditional drills across most track and field um, it's Something where, um, you know, and there's another aspect in there that you were kind of pulling apart this idea of variability or repetition without repetition of the, another Bernstein idea that no two reps are ever going to be the same to begin with, but to be able to navigate upon what each rep brings and each moment by moment brings is, and that's why I say that the more skillful performer in your sport is really not all that different from the most skillful performers in my sport because the most skillful performers are those who are able to be most attuned and keep adapting through and around that, which what that respective repetition brings. And that's why Bernstein way back in 67 said, like we should get rid of the repetition by rote. No two reps are going to be the same. And we should ensure that no two reps are the same. We should allow the performer to have this facilitation of skills so they can navigate the nuances of the skill execution. And I think that's what you get even in beginners. If we are to try to remove um, them from the more global or whole activity and try to part it out into these segments or, or really isolate you know, certain positions, patterns, um, these aspects of the technical model. I find it interesting that, you know, even in an activity that has been around as long as it has, that there isn't really like one traditional school of thought that precedes all others there's various schools of thought that can be equally successful right this is the idea of authenticity in abundance to a certain degree that the movement system has a bunch of abundance to it degrees of freedom and ways of us for to be able to coordinate control and organize those degrees of freedom again don't think just um, from a motor system standpoint don't just think motor positions and patterns think about the information that one is attuning to think about how one is intentionally aiming to interact in a given moment of time and that's where when you say like one cue will work at for and for one position or on one spin and it no longer works for the other no sitting down on something doesn't work the same in one spin versus the next it also doesn't work the same way from one performer to the next
0: yeah. Right. Oh, and exactly. Yeah. So
1: now all of a sudden we see this huge amount of nonlinearity. We see this huge uh, reality that we face in any sport, which is this complex adaptive system that is always adapting. And it's in getting, figuring out, and this is something that Stu and I talk quite a bit about, l- figuring out where to leverage ourselves in that complex adaptive system is everyone's art. Right? right? And right, whether right. that's a beginner, whether that's yeah. a, an expert, think about it more as from an individual by individual standpoint, how can we allow that individual to authentically be themselves within that respective activity, wherever they are across that time scale? And so uh, a couple more things here, I think when we think about what are they attuning to, and what are they adapting around, if we can start to um, not only let our learning environment, meaning the activities, the if we want to call them drills, the I call them learning activities or, or movement problems, how we want to set up those movement problems to challenge and stretch the player performer uh, or athlete in a way where perceptually, intentionally, and then from a motor system or action standpoint, they're being stretched and able to grow. That's really what our job is. The beginner, I think we could do better by them, by him or her, if we were to keep the the activity itself, the event itself, more intact, and allow them to more navigate whole. the yeah more whole, yeah, yeah. Uh, more yeah. global. And so, because there, we're not removing any of the information that they must become sensitive and attuned to when they do move yeah. up in levels. And so, I think that's there that that you found the benefit of kind of going back to that whole
0: map. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so Patty McGrath, you yeah. know, when he, uh, you know, I, he said to me, uh, you know, it's funny too, because my mentor, Dr. Bondarchuk, the guy was mm-hmm. talking about uh, the, the, the throws, Bill Belichick, you, you can argue that I guess, but um, he um, that's what he does. I still when, when I brought him into Canada and we started coaching together day one, And, you know, he's like, okay, he was when he first came to Canada, he was coaching 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. Okay, this Mm -hmm. is a guy who's coached like 23. He's got like 23 Olympic medals under his belt and blah, blah, blah. Um, He, uh, um, you know, it's just he gets a light hammer, and he just like, you know, okay, you do this and he couldn't speak in English. So, that made it worse. <laughs> so it's like, he would just sort of show them do this. And he would, you know, and they're falling all over and he's like, don't worry about it. That's just perfect. Let them, you know? That's yeah, perfect. exactly. And that's what Patty says. Patty says my goal in their first day, it might take two hours, but my goal is to establish a three turn, get three turns and release the implement. He said, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how ugly it is and then get three turns going. And then everything after that is refining and polishing and, and blah, blah, blah Um, here. Okay. So there's, here's another challenge that we have in the, and I think this ties into where you were just going. There's kind of a continuum that we deal with in the hammer throw. Okay. So if you're a hammer coach and you coach like most do both genders, men Mm -hmm. and women. Okay. Then, and the, so the men's competitive weight is 7.26 kilograms, which is 16 pounds. The women's competitive weight is almost half that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So think about that for a second. It's, it's four kilos. So it's like eight pounds, nine ounces or something like that. So it's almost half. Um, so you have this. So if you think about it, not in terms of the weight of the ball, but the, but the pulling force mm-hmm. that uh, the maximum pulling force for world class males, it's like it's like uh, about 350 kilos. Okay, and when, when the ball is mm-hmm. descending through the low point and right before their right foot comes off the ground, that's how much force they're dealing with. And it's you know like you like you could say like you could talk about instantaneous forces in sprinting that are huge, but this is not that short. Right, you know, we're talking about like two tenths of a second or longer for some athletes, you know? Um, So it's a lot of pulling force. So, and the women, it's about half that, or maybe a little more than half that. Okay. All right. But think about this for a second. So on one end of the continuum, you have, what could be like, I've coached women that are, you know, 250 pounds, 260 Mm -hmm. pounds. So you got a 260 pound athlete dealing with a pulling force that is Say, you know, maybe it's three, four hundred pounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. And at the other end of the continuum, you have someone like Litmanoff and Sadiq, yeah. who were very light throwers. They were not big men, but they're dealing with a 16 pound hammer that has a pulling force of up to, I think it's, it was probably, it's around 750 pounds, something like 700 pounds. So you got, you know, if you look at it, uh, uh, a body weight. To, to pulling force ratio, let's say, right? That they, you know, that comp- those are two t- big differences, right? Yeah, those are but extreme. That's the extreme yeah, end yeah. for the continuing. a big woman with a light ball and a yeah. smaller man with a heavy ball. And that's, of course, the, 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 the landmarks, the positions you're looking at are going to be completely, you have to coach those differently. So I just- Well, and to- I think
1: as you aim to, when you think about that, think less about coaching to it and more about facilitating their abilities. Uh, and, And I know you and Stu did a great job kind of expanding upon this idea of the bandwidth the Mm -hmm. bandwidth of the technical execution or of the skill in existing on the extreme ends of that bandwidth. What I would try to um, implore people to do, because the information, again, I think in terms of information movement coupling quite often, the information that one is going to be utilizing to guide or regulate or control one's movement is going to be different based on the heavier weight versus the lower one, right? Yeah. And I think it's there the more dexterous we can get the performer to become, not always existing at that heavier weight, even if that's what they need to throw and they are a lighter thrower, but, but navigating that continuum a little bit more, I think there's some teaching that could happen there because you're actually scaling the information that is speaking to them that they're going to pick up. And so I think it's there that we actually gain robustness, bulletproofness of the movement system by kind of expanding their skill set, expanding their execution, testing out their skill set, just by allowing them to throw the various weights of hammer. And I'm sure you guys do that a lot, but, but I think it's, it's there that. We should look to those positions, those patterns, that movement execution as much as we do when they're in the competitive environment where they're throwing the one that we know what it's going to weigh. So, even giving them, uh, you know, this utilizing this idea of repetition without repetition, so they have to navigate uh, a different weight of hammer almost rep to rep. I think what we would find is a more Let's just call it solidified, authentic, individual movement solution. And you might start to find that they um, start to stabilize their own positions, patterns, or execution a little bit more. Their own technical model, especially when you know we look at those three performers that you sent me the um, the videos on, mm-hmm. or you even when when you communicate this idea that. Um, You know, even amongst those high ranking throwers, there are some that maybe would violate certain key technical execution positions or patterns, right? Mm -hmm. They might uh, violate certain rules of biomechanics, maybe not rules of biomechanics, but more so rules that are commonly thought of
0: interpretations of technique.
1: Yes. yes. And see, I would rather go towards those interpretations, the individualistic interpretations, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to impart our own way upon a performer. And I think that's where the unique opportunity and challenge is for you right now, when you're talking about working with athletes across the time scales mm-hmm. and across that spectrum of learning, because you have a unique opportunity in front of you where you might have a couple of young kids um let's say that they both maybe on the surface look to be relatively similar uh, as far as stages of learning are concerned mm-hmm. you could allow them to sort of carve out their own style their own authentic touch and honest way of being able to throw the hammer and I think that's the challenge for you right now
0: but where is the line then between and I and I would you know i'm going to go back to this closed versus open loop uh, mm-hmm. activities but where is the line then between allowing them to develop their own expression of of technique develop their own technique that fits them as a as an individual in their environment mm-hmm. and simply teaching them bad technique simply having bad mechanics because there is such a thing right yeah you know,
1: and and i think some of that i mean that of course is this whole idea of an art of coaching but i think only you yourself with your own coaching i can determine what maybe is violating the key tenets that would maybe lead to injury later on that maybe could you know keep them having a, a career that is more long lasting um that maybe I think what we find, though, is some of this idea of this technical model, that there's a bigger bandwidth than that which what we would sometimes appreciate or give consideration to. Mm -hmm. And I think we can have more room, uh, not for error per se, but more room for variance, more room for variability, Mm -hmm. and not only more room for variability performer to performer, but within one performer not necessarily looking to hit certain landmarks in certain positions. And, you know, us going through with our coaching eye and drawing, um, you know, our coaching eye app and drawing angles and biomechanical um, focus and emphasis there, but speaking more to them, being able to navigate that problem based on who they are at that moment in time and on that respective day. I think it's there that we can harness this idea of being a facilitator as opposed to being someone who's prescripting. And or mm-hmm. prescribing, and I and I think there's some prescribing, nuance. Prescribing
0: when you say prescribing, you mean prescribing technical cues, yes, or yes. okay,
1: yeah, as opposed to facilitating and giving them room to navigate some of those errors and mistakes. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the greatest things uh, I'm trying to think. Who's the guy who you sent me the video? It was a longer video, but it was showing him over his progression of his career.
0: Uh, Mirafushi. Yeah, Mirafushi. Yeah. Um, I yeah. love that video. Yeah, that's because, a great video. Because
1: see how many throws were obviously going into the cage. Yeah, and yeah. he's just kind of like, and look at how his body structure changed over yeah. that period of time. All of those constraints that were changing, and him navigating through those mistakes, giving the the room to navigate through those mistakes as a coach is really giving this ability or opportunity to facilitate the skill and sort of co-adapt, have this co-adaptive relationship between you yourself as the coach and the player or athlete or performer. And I think some of the things you mentioned earlier about Bondarchuk and and then uh, Patty, um, where they talk about just uh, making or requiring a thrower to have the three turn on day one or on that global holistic movement. As opposed to looking at, um, we don't care how ugly it is, like, let's start there. Mm -hmm. And what we Mm -hmm. might find is that we might find novel solutions that we could chase that actually end up being really functional for that respective thrower, Mm -hmm. that, that respective athlete, it could be functional for them. Um, you know, a a story that I often use, you know, you see Barry Sanders and I don't know how closely you follow American football, but he's kind of the most dexterous mover that the national football league has ever seen. And I have a bunch of Barry stuff around because, um, he's near and dear Did to you my work heart with him or? no he, okay. he was really like what sparked my interest in studying uh, okay. movement skill at this level really? okay yeah but i happen to work with adrian peterson who is um, top five running back in the history of the national football league as well Oh wow. okay. and he came well after barry had retired but barry is utilized as sort of this torchbearer for national football league running backs and adrian um you know Uh, a high level performer uh, himself, Mm -hmm. again, probably top five, top 10 in the history of the National Football League. When he and I were working together, I made this mistake early on of trying to chase this way of moving that Barry move that was really authentic and unique to him. Adrian and I would like watch it and chase it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, there's You you, you would
0: use him as your model. I use
1: him as my model. But what I what I realized is is it wasn't his model of um, positions and patterns and motor patterns or, or motor system degrees of freedom. What I needed to embrace was his sort of his form of life, his problem solver paradigm, if you will, and chase his adaptability and his ability to navigate throughout any problem. That is what I started to chase for the players that I partner with now. But Adrian and I, early on, we like chase this motor pattern and we would actually like draw our attention to it. Like, look at these angles that he's in, look at the way that he utilizes this power cut or this speed cut. Like, let's try that. And then the game would come around. Adrian would go and behave. And I was like, where is that? Without realizing like the elephant in the room, you know, Barry Sanders is five foot eight, 200 pounds and obviously short, stocky. Um, you can't really see them on the pictures here, but all you'd have to do is go and look at them. And, as opposed to an Adrian Peterson who's 6'1 in 217, 218. Hmm. Okay. So even there, we're talking about individual organismic constraints that are unique to that respective individual. And that's not even taking into consideration their movement form of life, their history, their intrinsic dynamics. Hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier one performer who's able to pick something up really, really rapidly and almost to a fault. Mm -hmm. Like I would harness that, that Mm -hmm. ball of energy, if you will, from his experiences for whatever it is, something that, that he was touched upon within his experience before look for ways to harness that as opposed to quote unquote, holding him back until he's ready. You know, Mm -hmm. that's something that I would challenge you upon thinking like, how do I find ways to be able to like, um, not rush him through. But see what he's capable of Mm -hmm. even early on, even at the risk of doing that, which, what some would suggest, which would be like, you're getting too far ahead of yourself. He hasn't mastered this, he hasn't stabilized this, Mm -hmm. he hasn't. So on and so forth. It's like, yeah. how do we know unless we really test out the movement yeah. system and see what it's capable of? And we might find that there's some novelty there. We might find that there's some authenticity there, but yet it's still functional. It still allows him to throw far and to do it in a way that doesn't allow him to get injured or, or have certain um, you know, even if it's far from the norm, if you will, of the current technical models that are out there. Because that's, I think, what we really find the true cool um, nature of the complex adaptive system. You know, we see players or throwers or just humans doing things that we didn't know were even possible Mm -hmm. because of our old paradigms, our old ways of viewing things. Mm -hmm. And and so when I look at the men's record, and it's obviously the world record has stuck since 1986, Mm -hmm. you end up thinking to yourself, like, wait a minute, why hasn't the world record been set? Like, what changed within the constraints that hasn't allowed the evolution of the hammer throw to continue at the same fashion or in the same way, or was it just happened to be a perfect storm with this guy in 86 that allowed it yeah, to do it?
0: Well, oh, man, there's a lot of issues there. Uh, well, drug, um, drug testing, first of all, it's, it's cleaner than it yeah. was. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, but it's still, but that can't account for all of it. Uh, um, right. pe- people do think that, that the, um, uh, that the technique quote unquote has deteriorated generally speaking, um, for, uh, at least within the men, I'm not sure where I stand on that. Um, um, I don't think it's gotten better. That's for sure. I'm not sure how much worse it is. It really depends on which school you, you sort of, you know, go to, but you know, Mm -hmm. here's, here, here's one thing that's really interesting though. Um, so the basic idea when you're teaching this, this event is that, and, and there are some biomechanical studies and some thoughts out there that, that um, dispute this and which I buy into actually, but I think it's minimal is that you can only really accelerate the ball when you have two feet on the ground. Okay. So the idea is, and this, this is where the two schools of thought kind of, um, diverge right is the idea is to to spend as you know if you look at the orbit so the degree you know the circle that the ball makes you want to be spend as much time in double support as you can which enables you to move the ball but you're of course doing that quickly right Right. so so um and then, you know, minimize the time in single support. Well, it turns out that those two phases, even in a world-class thrower, are about equal. You know, they're, they're I mean, you can, you know, generally speaking. Um, but here's the interesting thing is that if I, and I've asked this question to a lot of people I've coached, a lot of, uh, and, and other throwers that I've run into, and, um, when that foot hits the ground, regardless of whether you think we, we call it a catch, that's when it's the okay. catch. And w- And so what, when the right foot hits the ground, you know, one school of thought is you want you want to maximize the catch. You, so you want to make sure that the ball is, you, you want that foot on the ground when the ball is as close to the high point as you can. And then the other school of thought is more like, well, no we're, we're not we're going to worry so much about that but we're just going to really emphasize uh the 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 moving of the ball and the overall rhythm when, you know wherever it lands that's mm-hmm. basically it um <clears throat> but if you ask athletes and i did this a couple about uh, two months ago i phoned, uh, i called up i had a zoom call with a with a female athlete i used to coach the, the british girl i was telling you about mm-hmm. that in the stadium she went on with um, uh, one of the world's top hammer coaches, uh, guy, he's actually American, but he's Swedish on the West Coast, his name's Tor Gustafson. She went on with him to win an Olympic bronze medal, okay? Um, very good competitor, very known, for, known for being able to perform at the moment and rise above herself and all that. I asked her, you know, I, I, I called her up, we hadn't talked in years and I called her up and I said, you know, hey, I just got a, one question for you. <laughs> I said, how do you move the ball? Like, how do you accelerate the ball? So, when that foot gets on the ground, what do you think of to move the ball? And I knew what she was going to say because I've asked other people that she didn't have an answer. Right. She's like, I don't know. She's all I know is when I do it right, the ball just goes zing. It just threw, like, there was a like, feeling. Yeah, it's a feeling that, like, the, the ball just takes off through through the low point and mm-hmm. I just stay relaxed and and uh, you know I I I I you know and she and you know and I remember when I coached her I I we went through this process. I I I asked her just to get her to not because I, I was looking for an answer. I wanted her to think about it right mm-hmm. and um you know it's quite interesting but you ask a lot of hammer throwers they can't put into words how mm-hmm. they how they accelerate that ball whereas you know, you ask a, a, sh- a rotational shot putter, or especially a glide shot putter, they'll be able to tell you exactly where. Where you know. So, for instance, you know, um, if you're in training and with a with a uh, uh, with a um, with a glide shot putter, you know, and you say to them, "Okay, look, I just want you to throw further now." What are they going to do to do that? They're going to know what to do, right? Like, and I'm talking in a precise sense, right? They might. They might push harder with the right leg. They might they might strike faster. They might hold a block longer. But with a hammer throw, it's very difficult to get them to to you know cam, But it's very difficult for them to put that. Well, forward. and
1: I, th- I I think there we can start to again bring it back to. The complexity of that which what we're referring to right Right. like the the navigation of this respective movement execution is taking place where the environment and the problem um, is presenting a very difficult and challenging uh, problem to overcome. And I think the information that, again, is speaking to us, there's so many layers there because of the, the nature of not only the complexity, but also the complicated nature, much to the point that you made earlier, right? Like, I mean, there's so many intricate nuances that are obviously interacting there that are relating to a better throw versus a lesser throw. But I think what we find is that, or what would be interesting to find at least, would be if we were talking about that respective performer who's talking about it, the zing type of action um, where she's able to feel when something is quote unquote in this zone or in this void or space where she's interacting with it in this way, like if her perception of the zing throw actually matches or meets the biomechanical markers or models mm-hmm. that we have set for her mm-hmm. and my guess would be that it's this adaptability zone sort of this what we would refer to and I don't want to geek out too much here from an ecological perspective or a dynamical systems perspective but there's this thing that we talk about with metastability or multistability where there's a range that we can operate within where we can still behave in a much uh, in, a, in a optimal way but it isn't um a really reduced, Fashion from a technical execution standpoint, where the, we might have some variance there as to where that, um, you know, where the hammer is as far as it's at its apex yes. versus how it's going through the zone, right? right? And so I think it's all these confluence of constraints that are probably coming together for her that's allowing her to have the zing throw. Mm-hmm. It's not just, we can't just separate it. Like the phenomenon of interest isn't just the biomechanical markers, the phenomenon of interest is how is this, how are all these constraints having this confluence of this context that then shapes itself into this content that is the far throw? And it's things such as how she's on the ground, the positions and the angles. Those things are certainly imperative and important. But what about things such as other factors organismic factors for mm. her at that moment in time mm. how she's handling mm. um the the rhythm the tempo the pace mm. her I- actual intention going into that moment like was mm. she really clear was she really clear minded or was she thinking something from a cueing standpoint that maybe she's holding upon herself What about things within the environment where maybe she just came off of a throw where she made some adjustments, or maybe she just came off some throws where she was just kind of like going through the motions, like all of those things kind of factor in Mm -hmm. to this confluence of constraints where it's this perfect storm again of this zing throw, right? Right, right. And too often as coaches, we we take our own biases into mind. Of course, we all have our biases, that's just human nature. But we may look at it and kind of create straw man arguments for ourselves. Like, look at on this zing throw, here was where this, you know, here's where the hammer was at this Point in time, that must be what we should chase. Mm-hmm. Instead, what yeah. it, what we should yeah. chase is is her being in this in this different frame and state of mind to be yeah, able to behave in more that fashion. Holistic. Bingo, yes. bingo! Yeah, yeah, looking yeah. taking a no, step back thing. and like totally. you know, you probably have seen that elephant uh, that elephant graphic where everybody's looking at the elephant up really close, and one person sees the tail, and one person sees the trunk, one person sees the ear, and they're all talking about what they see, but no one sees that it's a fucking elephant.
0: Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know like yeah, because yeah, no yeah, one's yeah,
1: actually taking yeah, a total. step back and really it's like the elephant yeah. and all the parts and how they come together is yeah, what no, makes no, the no. elephant what it yeah. is
0: yeah well i mean i think you know also it, 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 this this uh, this whole discussion could evolve into how how you set up training and, yes. your, and your periodization and your planning so so the, the 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 type of training i used which was uh invented by this dr Bonnerchuk is very very strict in its mm-hmm. in its app in its dosage right yes, so you yes. you present i i don't want to get too into it, but you present uh workouts trainings programs whatever and you don't change them you repeat you track performance which we can do very easily because we can throw outside as long as we can throw outside all the time or we can use a bar velocity to do it as well uh we 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 track progress and then when they peak then we change the set of exercises mm-hmm. which sounds counterintuitive to what a lot of what you've been discussing however i i will say this uh, it it he's a big believer and i'm a big believer in that when when the athlete throws we're always throwing a combination of light competitive and heavy hammers right mm-hmm. which is different from what a lot of traditionalist coaches do which is in the offseason you throw and that's and th- that's if they do this because a lot of Coaches, I be mean, only throw the competitive weight all the really? time. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no. Oh,
1: just, that's mind boggling. Yeah, <laughs> no. and especially, and
0: and that's more prevalent with developing athletes, if you can believe that, right? Whereas, just because you know, they
1: want the consistency and they want to reduce the variability, so they, they
0: just okay, they they just there's no that's all they have or that's all they you know that's all they do, and they you know it's always the same thing. They throw mm-hmm. the competitive weight, twelve pound hammer, and. Or shot in high okay. school, they do the hmm. same exercises: squats, cleans, bench, that kind of thing. Anyways, mm-hmm. but Bonderchuck, you know, we're always about the, you know, we're always throwing light some something close to the competitive weight, or uh, you know, not the exact competitive weight, but a little bit heavier, a little bit light, and a heavy hammer, right? Whereas, but there's a a more traditionalist so will go. At in the early off season, all heavy hammers, and as they go towards the competitive season, it gets lighter and lighter and lighter, and then they introduce the competitive weight somewhere in there. But I, I like, I always have a heavy and a light in there just because, Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know, uh, outside of what we've been talking about, those. You know, you need you need to have that rhythm in there. And I'm uh, those two different rhythms. Three. Well, and it, and it's
1: problems. It is it ends
0: up being problem
1: solving well, in and of exactly itself, right? To move from one to the
0: next. Because of what I'm about to say, which is this whole idea of countering, which I've not talked about. So this this well in a in a roundabout way so when the hammer picks up speed and it has this pull, you have to be you counter it with the weight of your body right and that's why drills don't typically work where there's where you're not exactly exactly so
1: and that's the information derek to one has to become sensitive
0: to and navigate exactly exactly so Fushi, oddly enough and i i had a um um, i did a podcast with uh one of his coaches and a good friend of his don babbitt who's also one of the world's top throws coaches he I, i did a podcast back uh uh, last year with him. And, uh, he was talking about a biome like Koji Murafushi is actually a biomechanist by, oh, by really? profession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he studied the hammer, like, you know, he's Japanese. And I mean, you know, he's right into it, right? Well, he did a study, you know, uh, which is really interesting. And, and I think it's something that most hammer coaches would be able to tell you, but he, you know, put it in a concrete objective terms with measurements is that if you look at beginning throwers, uh, uh middle throwers, so say at a, at a, you know, at, at a moderate level mm-hmm. and elite throwers. Okay. So where, and you, he measured their center of gravity, both at the low point or where the ball was pulling the most mm-hmm. and measured it measured their center of gravity. Uh, relative to where the ball is at the high point okay which theoretically has the least right he put in objective terms that beginners were where when the ball uh was low at the low point they their center of gravity was low when the ball was high their center of gravity was high the elite people were the opposite when, when the center of gravity was low. So when the ball is low to the ground, they were up against it. Like they were, I mean, there's, if you take, you, you could take still shots of some of these guys uh, and women, but particularly guys, because there's more pull on the ball. Um, and it's a heavier ball. But if you take an elite thrower going into turn three, their last, or their last turn, they're, they're basically standing straight on. Right. Like you 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 wouldn't necessarily notice it in a when you look at it in real time, but if you break right. it down frame by frame and then Within a tenth of a second, when the ball is up at the high point, their, their center of gravity is, is at the lowest point. So it's always opposite the ball. Whereas a beginner, for whatever reason, their tendency is to follow the ball. Yeah. They follow the, the weight of the ball. When the, when the ball pulls, they go towards it. That's one of the things that... And that's the thing that this kid I was talking about just naturally figured out on his own within like the first workout or two right he just he really likes to lean back against it you know it's called we call it the counter the drop and so it's uh you know negotiating that Mm -hmm. i think i you may i agree with everything you said because i've been doing it for years is that that's what like we manipulate the environment by using light and heavy hammers so they can feel that and they can and they can learn that and when you and i would say like I mean, obviously once the athlete gets to a, to a certain level of, of competency um, you know, the heavy hammers, they can feel this very easy with heavier hammer and we'll go really heavy hammers Mm -hmm. and do turns just to feel it. But with light hammers, it's very hard to do. And back to that continuum I talked about Mm -hmm. with men or, you know, larger athletes, light balls, smaller athletes, heavy balls. Well, large women throwing light training implements, which can be as light as two and a half kilos. Imagine. Right. You know, there, I mean, you're, you're going to see almost no counter because they, they can't feel it. But I always say like, if they can get their technique, like if they can, you know, if they can get, like when they're throwing those balls well in terms of distance and with rhythm and good technique, you know, they're on, because you, you you know that they've they've established something. They're in what we call peak condition because that's very, very hard to do, right? Because you just don't feel it. It's it's almost right. for them, it's like it's like it's like doing a drill with a stick almost, right? Yeah. They they cannot move the ball fast enough to create enough pull where that where a 250-pound woman. Or, you know, 200-pound-plus woman is going to be able to hang off of it. She just can't do it. She'll fall on her ass, right? Well,
1: and it's taking place in such a short period of time, and and the information Mm -hmm. is coming to the system so quickly that you can't consciously become sensitive to it right? Yeah. You just can go, you can be conscious about how the entire action feels, mm-hmm. but probably not the smallest nuances of it because of the, yes. the continuum or where you exist on the continuum. That countering idea, Derek is, and really what um, you said would have been found between beginners and experts, I think is a really intriguing thought experiment for all listeners out there. I would wonder, especially because you talked about your beginner, the guy who kind of got it from the beginning, mm-hmm. and, I'm guessing that, you know, here's another Bernstein idea, and I know that I've dropped a lot of Bernstein and Bruce Lee quotes in this this hour and a half, but this other idea from Bernstein was that no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged. And so if we think about the phenomenon that is the beginner interacting with the hammer and throwing it. Did it emerge in that fashion? Because we oftentimes, with beginners, try to take a more part to whole type of methodology, where we don't actually allow them to interact with the whole as much as we do the parts. And so it's really compartmentalized. It's really um, simplified. It's really isolated in a means of trying to teach it. As opposed to doing that, which what the expert has had all of these reps, all these exposures, all these experiences, so now they have self organized, and and I hate to throw that term into the mix here right, right now, obviously this is deep into the conversation because there will be these different ideas of self organization, but what has emerged for the expert is off of all the exposures, all the experiences, and really all the problems that they have solved. So what I would suggest, at least for those out there that are sort of thinking about this, working with the beginners or working with the people who are intermediates, is how much more quickly could you get their phenomenon to be closely related to that of the expert by having them solve problems that look feel act and behave closer to the competitive event and what you might find that does emerge for the beginner like it did for yours was something that does resemble the execution the actual skill execution of that of an expert where the countering action their low center of gravity isn't when the Um, the hammer is low, or the uh, you're calling it the ball is low. In contrast, it resembles that much more of the expert. I think there could be something to that. Where when it's studied, when it's researched, and we look at it across averages, we know how most people treat beginners. They treat beginners sort of with these kid gloves, we're going to take Mm -hmm. our time, we're going to take these progressive linear steps, Mm -hmm. we're not going to move on until you're ready. And I think the key specifying information times or phases, such as when they're countering, or such as when they're going through the highest amounts of pulling force, they don't know how to navigate it, Mm -hmm. because of the drills and activities we've utilized, because we've treated them in this really reduced kind of local to global, really part to whole type of fashion. Whereas I would suggest let's go to the whole, let's go to the global, yeah. let's let them explore and experience things there.
0: I I, I totally agree with you. And I, I, I've, I've said this before to hammer coaches, you know um, like, I mean, this is not, I mean, I, I, uh, thankfully, I mean, I think, you know, in my own coaching to a large degree in terms of setting up mm-hmm. not so much teaching the technique but setting up training i've yeah. done a lot of this right i but, mean it's just inherent in what we do i I've, right. I've never been a big believer in drills i've always i've always been sort of a more of a whole uh, in terms of teaching it's just you know with with i did have this progression of of you know not doing not doing b until a was done not doing c until b was done but um i i've said to coaches before you know like it's very easy to be fooled in the hammer when you watch people when you watch athletes in real time because there's a difference between having smooth looking smooth and having quote unquote and Mm -hmm. having effective technique yeah right like like a lot of athletes will, will will look smooth and in that, it flow. It look. It appears to flow well, but the if the and we see this a lot in women today. Um, I don't. I'm not really sure why. It could be this whole thing with um, you know um, that I was talking about about this continuum. But but the, the the technique is not necessarily effective, right? Like in other words, they're not they're not applying force optimally you know, for them, this may sound like it's going against what you're saying, but I think Mm -hmm. it it actually agrees with it. So it's like, so you you have to be careful. Yeah. I I think a lot of athletes that do that, that look like that have just been drilled endlessly. They've just been drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled. And so they, they, but it's not functional. It's not functional or it's not as functional as it could be. Right. You, You know, you know what I mean? There's so many different layers. I mean, there's so many different things that kind of,
1: I I hope the listeners out there are sort of kind of able to peel apart the layers for themselves on that, which what is being shared, obviously, and, and what really makes sense to them. And I think that's the idea of this too, right? Because it's about utilizing, again, the Bruce Lee idea, utilizing your own experience and then absorbing what is useful, discarding what is not, and adding what is uniquely your own. I think that's really the coaching process for this as well, especially when we're talking about a highly complex event such as that which what you exist within. Mm -hmm. And that's when we're talking about being a facilitator and knowing how to leverage ourselves to make something more functional or to assist something to become more functional you never know what the athlete is going to sort of grab onto and what's going to resonate for him or her. And that then is going to show itself into the behavioral emergence. That is the movement skill when and where it matters. And I think that's really the thing that we want to think about as, as all coaches out there, mm-hmm. think about how some of these ideas in, uh, obviously I've never coached a hammer thrower, nor will I probably ever coach a hammer thrower, but the ideas of how we may view skilled movement behavior, transcends across sports i believe right. and i think we're finding that yeah, just yeah. as we sort of speculated would be the case
0: so I've, I've had you on here for quite a while i do have what i just i, I want to make one comment and then i'm gonna and then i'm then i'm gonna ask you one question okay i'm i'm all game i'll okay. stay on as long and, as you want me to okay well, stu okay. Stu's
1: probably right. stu probably listening now uh when he hears this later on and he's gonna laugh he's
0: like yeah you're not even gonna be able to get sean off <laughs> <laughs> well i'm the same i mean i could go forever so Okay. So uh, I, you know, I have kind of this, I go back and forth from this, you know, high performance slash elite uh, uh, coaching. Now I'm all developmental. Um, people that listen to this podcast, I I've done lots of podcasts. i both podcasts at both ends, blah, blah, blah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So where does ego fit into this? Because, <laughs> because, You know, I, I, I know what the problem is, I think, because I go through it. I'm not, I'm willing to admit it, you know, like, and and this is like, when I started this whole podcast, I, I, okay, I'm going to do this in a way that, you know, I'm just going to, I'm always just going to throw it out there, put my, put myself out there. And because I want and respect for that. Respect for that. Thank you. Thank you. But I mean, it's just, but it's just the only way that you can get good, good content, to be honest with you. I mean, it has to be honest. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, right? So I know with me, and I can tell you, I see this all the time with, with developmental coaches, one of the reasons why we stick to these fucking models so, Mm -hmm. so strictly, and we don't allow an athlete to go from, from B to C until it's perfect, because we get these models in our heads and we want the athlete, athletes' performance and how they not just the distance, but how they look is a reflection mm-hmm. of of us and you our got it. coaching, right? And you have to kind of let go of that to be able to do what you're talking about here, right? You do. Because because it's going to be messy as mm-hmm. fuck at the yes, and and there's no event, it's going to be messier than in the hammer. So <laughs> let's talk on that for a sec. Like, what are your yeah. thoughts there?
1: Uh, I could not agree more. I absolutely positively could not agree more. I think the ego is such a dangerous thing. I and mean, again, whether we're talking about the developmental athlete or whether we're talking about an elite, they are going to be a reflection of us to a certain degree. And so, you know, I used to get really bent out of shape, and I'm talking about. 2012 2013 2014 when i was in this place of movement, my movement skill acquisition journey and the way that i was viewing movement behavior was oriented around technical execution perfect movement perfect practice made perfect you know and and so i would watch my athletes behave and and people would point out to me all the dang time on like social media because i have the blog football beyond the stats where i'm critiquing uh Mm -hmm. the movement and the movement behaviors of the game's best players that i was so critical of others movement that then people would watch the athletes that i partner with and all of of a sudden they're pointing out hey this guy's knee dumped into volgus here on that cut and this guy did this and this guy did that and and all of a sudden i'm like okay they're not wrong because obviously um i'm doing that to others to a certain degree and i'm judging, engaging uh, Mm. someone's movement and I'm like, wait a minute, maybe if movement isn't about those technical models anymore, but instead the movement is about someone finding their own honest, authentic expression of their own movement skill, once I started chasing that path, I started realizing that there was bigger bandwidth for me to exist within. That's obviously a, a rabbit hole that we sort of began mm-hmm. to go down earlier. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the artist mentality, right? Your son will obviously be able to appreciate mm-hmm. that quite significantly because we're going to see a wide variance of expression mm-hmm. when we're talking about playing the drums or, or playing the guitar or singing or anything, right, or all of it going together. But anyways, where I'm going with that is this, Derek. What I find is that oftentimes, we as coaches want to keep the athletes in their own respective box, because we are worried about what the world thinks. We're even sometimes worried about what their movement may tell us about our own practices. So when we watch someone behave, and they may not behave within those um, ideals that we hold so near and dear to our heart, they sort of become an exception to our own rules, And we're like, wait a minute, if that person is a reflection of us and that person's skill is a reflection of the work that we do and the things that we really try to to hammer home, then what worth do I have in that person's movement skill? You know, like I've always talked about in the National Football League, though, the game's best are really the game's best compensators. And ultimately, they're the game's best adapters they're not necessarily the ones that look the cleanest or look the crispest or look the most fluid. They're the ones that can adapt moment by moment under all the respective constraints and under the key performance inhibitors that the NFL brings. And what I started to realize is when I relinquished that control and just tried to attempt to facilitate more adaptability for the respective performers, I gave each player more room to grow and become who it is that they were born to be. And it allowed them to really kind of have their own expression of themselves within their movement skill. Um, I stopped trying to like, kind of keep them into their own, uh, let's just call it container. And this is something again that I got from Bruce Lee when he talks about, uh, you know, his art of Jeet Kune Do, which is just his interpretation of the martial arts is to use no way as the way that one's own way is always going to be more important than any style or system that's out there.
0: So can you give me an example then of your own experience? Then when you, you know, like how you would do it Mm -hmm. pre 2013 or whatever, whenever it was and how it would be done now, like a concrete, like, you know, like, give me an example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's take, for example, something that obviously can sort of transcend sports to a certain degree. So, Let's take really, uh, let's use a defensive end, um, getting at the line of scrimmage, lined up on an offensive tackle. They're obviously, um, their get off, their first step, second step is vitally important and imperative to them being put in the right position in right place to beat the tackle in route to the quarterback, potentially for a sack or a pressuring of the quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. So defensive ends that I worked with prior to 13, I would have told them, uh, we would have analyzed everything from a technical standpoint. Mm-hmm. How is, it, you know, how are they actually getting off the line of scrimmage? How are they actually exploding off of and out of their stance? And I would, we so
0: you would look perfect at video, that, uh, you'd break it down. Yes, you would, and it
1: would all be really decontextualized. Like, even though I had the game film out there and mm-hmm. we're actually utilizing that to judge and gauge like, okay, you're not getting off very fast. so this is something that we have to attack. And then of course we go in our own little perfect world where things don't look, feel, act, and behave much like football anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're having them do rote repetition, if you will, mm-hmm. of changing nuances and aspects of the motor pattern, uh, foot position, width of the stance, length of the stance, uh, height of the hips, trying to explore, but me telling them, and when I say try to explore, I should say, them exploring what it is that i'm telling them how to behave that would have been Mm pre-13 and we would try to perfect that to the point where i thought it was quote-unquote automatic so then therefore then it would just show itself out on the field on an nfl sunday when they're 65 snaps into the game and it's the fourth quarter and they're on a, a field that's already become slippery because it's drizzling out Right. right, And I'd be like, where the hell is our technical model? Where the hell is our movement that we did thousands of reps on? It was nowhere to be found, right? Mm -hmm. So now 13 to fast forward to 2021. Now it's more of a co-adaptive relationship where I'm attempting to facilitate uh, a stickier movement at times. So a stable movement, Mm -hmm. but also a more flexible and a more adjustable one. So no two reps in our environment are really ever the same. Number one now. So Um, I don't want them to look to repeat anything per se, besides the process of solving the entire problem. So now the defensive end putting his hand down in the dirt, um, you'll see my defensive ends are constantly like playing around while they're lining up for the respective snap. They're playing around with their stance. They're playing around with their width. They're playing around with their pressure and their feel they're playing around with their hips while the quarterback is actually under center. Like they just do it this inherently. Is in, now.
0: This is in rehearsal. This is in practice. This is in all, practice or, or game. Or now. game. Okay, okay. So
1: they're feeling who they are at that moment right. in time, knowing that that footing is changing, knowing that their fatigue is impacting and influencing right. their movement behavior. Again, they could be 60, 65 snaps into a game in the fourth quarter. Pressure and anxiety is high and they're trying to find their best functional fit at that moment in time. The other thing that we're chasing Derek now is this, is I asked them a lot, how did that feel? You know, and I asked them a lot how else could you look to behave? How else could you look to execute this respective movement? Let's say we're talking still about the stance. A lot of times I didn't even hear the stuff that athletes were telling me when I'd asked those questions 2013 and before. You know, like mm-hmm. I would have this idea of how I, I wanted them yeah. to look because yeah. I had studied all these yeah, other no, defensive ends yeah. and, and I'd be and like,
0: you're going to, and you're going to fucking make them look like that. No matter right. what, if I got to stay out here all day, we're yeah. going to do, even yeah. if the guy was like, yeah. well,
1: I can feel tendonitis in my knee when yeah, I do that, but yeah. like, oh, you just, you're just weak. You just need to do more yeah, reps. there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just haven't yeah. done enough there. And, and that's why it just feels abnormal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, no, and now totally. I kind of take that feedback and it's a more co-adaptive relationship. Right. Tell me, so, you know, how else could you behave?
0: So this may sound stupid, but I mean, so could you characterize this as your approach as to almost going back backwards and introducing more of a, like an organic play aspect to it? Yes. Does and that make sense? Do you, it does. Do you understand? Because if you had it, just left them alone, mm-hmm. that's probably what they would have done. Now they may not have figured it out as well as being coached, mm-hmm. but you know, um, but they, they, but they may have, right? I mean, I mean, because that's you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm just trying to make a make a point here. I mean, is it like you're, you're, you're kind of going back to. Uh, you know, opening up the environment for them to just react on their own and learn on their own, but you've also planted the seed, right? Like you've, yeah. you've, 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 so. It's you a really
1: I- good observation. It's a really astute observation on your part in fact, because really, again, if well, we view you. this, <laughs> if we view this from a problem solving paradigm or perspective, what we are aiming for is again, authenticity. We're also aiming for an abundance of strategies or solutions that allows us to be stable, but also flexible and to be able to adjust and coordinate in an online fashion. And what I am trying to aim for within both of those things Mm -hmm. is them to be sensitive to problem solving on the fly, right? Right, It it needs to be them. I'm not out on the field. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't do it the way that they do it. And so I have to respect that and kind of put that at the forefront of things. I, I think what I try to do is allow them to explore, search, and discover some nuances of their movement in their own gifts and their own unique and special way. And so people are gonna hear that play idea or that they would just figure it out. It, it isn't that we just throw them to the wolves and they can
0: do anything, no, because no. we might see some stuff. And that's that, not what I was. That's not no, what I was trying to get at. But. And
1: I know you weren't, but I know other people out there might hear this idea of self-organization mm. or this idea mm. of practice being a search process. Mm -hmm. If we think about that, and I believe that that again, transcends sports. I believe that every practice activity and every practice session should be a search process, whether we're searching for a movement solution that will exploit the problem at that moment in time, or whether we're searching to grow an abundant movement toolbox at that moment in time, it depends on the time of the year. And you and Stu talked about um, training towards learning or training towards performance Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, and there's mm -hmm. going to be a distinct difference there i'm attempting to allow the player to put their own fingerprint upon the game and upon their skill Mm -hmm. and the more i can get them to explore various ways of moving Um, the more I'm able to find like what's truly honest and authentic and individual to them. So it becomes a problem solving activity and process for the player, no matter whether we're learning for performance or learning for learning's sake. They're learning to learn to problem solve through their movement by however it is that I try to allow the environment to speak to them. And I think that's where when you talk about um, kind of going back to this idea of playing, that's why we do some of the things that we do early in the off season. Um, and, and I've written a blog in the past two years ago, uh, on how I periodize skill acquisition for the players that I partner with me in February, um, and sometimes into early March. So we're talking about a, usually a four to five week period of time. We're not doing overly football specific movements and overly football specific movement problem solving. I'm allowing them to become an athlete again, if you will, and allowing them to solve problems in an abundance and a plethora in a variety of ways. And so we'll do some like parkour for example, Mm-hmm. We'll do some some natural movement. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll just go play in nature, and you're mm-hmm. talking about the environment speaking to them. Some of these guys haven't even been in nature before.
0: No, no, oh, you know what I mean. Becoming more and more of a <laughs> of an oh, absolutely. Oh God, my God, dude, you and I could. You know, I think we should do another podcast strictly you know on developmental learning. I think I think that we could we could go crazy with that. Uh, I do I do have another question. But you, you yeah, I'm. i So, so I'm, 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 where, where's the? And this is going to be different for every athlete, obviously. But where is the line between thinking and moving instinctively? When you <laughs> when you put when you when these athletes are out there, and whether it's whether it's practice uh, or game environment, wherever. Like where? Let's talk about that for a sec.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and there, there's going to be a bunch of different rabbit holes that we could go down. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, if we go back to that gal that you mentioned earlier and how she couldn't consciously tell you anything beyond the zing type of, uh, uh approach. Yeah. Right. So part of well, my doctor, to be that fair I'm, to
0: her, she, she definitely knew a lot about right. her technique in that, but she said, when it, that's just a quote, when it goes well, mm-hmm. it's not a, I don't think. It's just I just I just do it and the and I know it I know I did it right when mm-hmm. the ball just goes zing to the to, well, to the outside. So
1: and obviously I brought up the Barry Sanders example before. And obviously I've studied all the nuances of Barry at at multiple Mm. speeds and in multiple different ways. But I've heard a lot of times when he speaks to people, when people talk about like how he made other players miss, because that's his evasiveness, his agility uh, was second to none. And that was the thing that made him the most adaptable dexterous mover that in my opinion, the NFL has ever seen. But when he talks about it, he said, the only thing I was trying to do was perfect the art of making that guy miss but it Mm. wasn't about how I was moving. Just did I make that guy miss? Yes or no. Was it functional? Yes or no. Was it practical? Did it fit the problem at that moment in time? And I didn't think beyond that because there wasn't time to think, Mm. right? Mm. And this is the most dexterous mover who's achieved the highest level, but yet what I found, so part of my doctorate is actually I'm taking a mixed method approach to studying the most skillful, running backs, the most dexterous running backs in the National Football League. And what I'm finding is that it's very individualistic, very authentic. Mike, you said, it depends on who it is. Mm -hmm. It depends on their respective form of life, how they view movement behavior. You might have someone who's just sort of along for the ride, and they just find a way of compensating and adapting in a way that just ends up being functional. And then you might have someone who's much more cerebral, Uh, about Mm -hmm. what they do and how they do it and it's okay to be either one right Mm -hmm. but what we find is sometimes those athletes um who might not be able to articulate as to why they're doing it there's only so much information we can glean from that which what they tell us it's all Mm -hmm. a feel thing right Mm -hmm. so to go in trying to inject a bunch of technical cues to what they do and how they do it Probably the wrong road to go. I was down. just
0: gonna say you got to be <laughs> no. super careful with them yes. too because <laughs> you, get so them what you, you, yeah, you get them overthinking. You the- yeah, you get them Or, or, and I said this. Uh, I said I think I said this in the podcast with Stu. You have to be careful with super gifted ones, mm-hmm. ones that are movement geniuses. Let's say you you have to be careful that what you, how you cue them if you cue them is right. Like you better know your stuff because they're gonna do it right away. Cause the really good ones can mm-hmm. can do it in instantaneously. So Adrian if,
1: Adrian was exactly that. Adrian Peterson who I mentioned earlier. You would tell him to do something and it would literally show itself right in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And I'd be like, "Oh shit, that's not what I wanted you to do." Why did you do that? Exactly. Oh, wait, exactly. that's my fault.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> or or exactly. Exactly. Or it had a domino effect, right? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things about the hammer is that it's a it's I call it the ultimate yin-yang chicken and egg event because you can look at a mistake at one point in the throw, but because it's truly rotational, yet those rotations have different characteristics to them in terms of force application and pull and all this. You're not really. It's hard to determine, as much mm-hmm. as we think we can, what caused that mistake. You got it you right. Got it. Like like it's it's not so easy, and so it's kind of sometimes it's like playing whack a mole. If, <laughs> if you if you if <laughs> you you see what you think is a flaw. You go to whack that and, and the then all of a pops sudden up you, somewhere else yeah, you caused all kinds of issues somewhere else. And this, you know, this happens with really good athletes because mm-hmm. or athlete or, well, you know, athletes with huge amounts of faith in you uh, because what you say to them, it, you know, they're going to do it. So sometimes, yeah. sometime, you know, I've learned to try to yeah you know, the and that's why I think the best workouts, like Stu said this, you know, is his goal is to just not say anything during yeah. workout. and i've i've I don't know if you got to the part of the podcast where i've I've, you know i'm i've I've moved more towards filming in in not not all mm-hmm. the time anymore, but I'll film once or twice a week um, from multiple angles, process that, send the athlete a video once a week, and mm-hmm. I'll say, look, here's what I think. And then I try to keep as quiet as I can. I dig that. I dig that. I did get to that part in the podcast and I really dig that. Um, In fact,
1: it's something that I aspire to do as well. It inspired me to a certain degree because whether it's you or whether it's me or even let's throw stew into this mix, like it's, we have a lot to contribute to that, which what is unfolding. But oftentimes we will get in the athlete's way Mm
0: -hmm, if mm -hmm. we try
1: to contribute too much because there's always something else we could add, Mm -hmm. right? And I think a lot of coaches fit within that uh, idea. There's so many things that we're seeing, so many things we'd like to tinker with and try but it's about being able to say the right thing at the right time in the right way that yeah. resonates for the athlete to then express itself through the skill for who they are at that moment. And uh, you're a hundred percent spot on. It's something that I'm going to try to do a lot more of as well, well here in my here, own film.
0: Oh, go ahead. Well, here's the other thing. So you you're, so you're an independent contractor, right? mm-hmm. I, I assume. So these mm-hmm. guys are hiring you, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I think one of the things that fucks this whole thing up totally is one to one coaching right it's really really hard and this kid I'm talking about right now I coach him separately because mm-hmm. it's not he's not really within my the 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 remit of my job it's uh, i'm'm pro- I'm coaching him privately mm-hmm. and I have another girl I do that but my job where I'm getting paid uh, with my boss with these other kids there's four of them um you know I've so my my boss is in the process of uh of of uh, a big facility upgrade and i've talked him into we have we have basically one training cage that we throw out of so Mm -hmm. one athlete can throw at a time right and i'll send them i'll give them two or three hammers they'll take three throws in a row and then they'll and then they'll they'll come out and then the next guy so they got all that weight in between and it's always one to one so what i've done is i've 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 talked my coach into in this facility upgrade. He's doing, this is all private. He's done this all with his own money. I mean, the guy, guy, Oh, the guy's amazing. He's amazing. Anyways. um, I've talked him into adding a essentially four more circles right next to it with cages. So I can have five athletes coaching uh, throwing at the same time. So they'll Mm -hmm. all go in. I'll have five athletes walk into these, into these, five different cages then four of them are they're just makeshift smaller cages just Mm -hmm. enough to protect each other they'll all throw three or four hammers but the goal the number one goal in that is to get more reps in pardon that term okay but more problem solved yeah because i i only have an hour with these kids Mm -hmm. you know they they because my my boss will not let me coach them longer than that because they got to get home schoolwork, and all that right so I said, okay. Well, if that's what we're going to do, then these kids need—they, you need throws to throw the hammer. You need throws. You, 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 you need. Op- let's not call them repetitions. Let's call them opportunities to discover your, yeah. your, your own movement solution. Okay. I, I love Let's it. call it that. Okay. I okay. want
1: you to start calling it that from okay. now on. Yeah, it's yeah, no well, that's re- a bit of a
0: mouthful <laughs> to be honest with you, and that's something <laughs> Stu would say. But anyways, anyways, but the I, but but also the other big benefit to it. Like, I mean, the, the, these kids are gonna, they're gonna triple the amount of throws that they're gonna get in a, in an hour, right? Which I mm-hmm. think is a good thing, right? But the other thing, it's gonna stop me from overcoaching mm-hmm. because I can't watch five at the same time. Over coaching
1: right? and overanalyzing.
0: And overanalyzing, right? So, mm-hmm. so I, I'm like, I'm really excited when these things get built. And he's and it's a very small part of a big mm-hmm. of a big change in our facility but i was really insistent on this um and so i think that's going to help so anyway so that's anything you want to end on uh there's there's so many you for two shit we're over two hours now no i'm
1: i'm always game and obviously i'm i'm really keen on jumping on to speak about more, anything, whatever, as you go back and listen back through this, or maybe even as the listeners go back through this, there's so many rabbit holes. When we're talking about complex adaptive systems of sport and complex movement behavior, there's so many different rabbit holes and how really what you were speaking to at the end there is really... Um, a microcosm of that which what we talked about throughout the course of the two hours Mm -hmm. which is it's about the relations and the interacting component parts and it's about the interactions more than it is about the parts themselves Mm -hmm. and it's i think the more we can think about it in those terms to step back and look at the whole elephant as opposed Mm -hmm. to the pieces and parts of the elephant i think the better off we all are Mm -hmm. but i i think it you know, I, I hope there were some things that resonated not only for you, Derek, but oh, also th- there was a bunch totally. of different things. I mean, I took a page and a half of notes hearing you speak as, as you were saying things that I want to go back and reflect upon after we get off, because I think there's a lot of layers that we can peel uh, apart here. Mm-hmm. Definitely want to totally. jump on with your with your son and, and maybe even bring Stu into the mix, even though that's dangerous um, <laughs> <laughs> at the same time.
0: Well, Stu uh, and I just <laughs> argue. Right. I mean, that, 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 at least I know you're
1: not the only one.
0: (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah. Good, good. That, that last podcast was the best we've done in terms of like, you know, not talking over each other and not, you know, and some people find it humorous, but sometimes it gets in the way, but. Well, at he least is, it's. But, does he roll
1: his eyes at you as much as he rolls his oh, eyes at me? Is really six. is oh, really possibly, the thing that possibly. I ask.
0: He laughs at me. Is what he does. He gives <laughs> these these little these chuckles. <laughs> yeah, it's like fuck off. <laughs> anyways, anyways, anyways. Hey, l- listen, Sean, this is fantastic. Hey, what what uh, what's your website? And oh and, yeah, and and where can people get more information on on what you're doing?
1: Yeah, a few places. Uh, the first place is I, I do own a movement skill education company uh, entitled Emergence, and that's at Emergent Movement. And the movement is MVMT. So, emergent movement, MVMT.com. Uh, and we do a bunch of different things as far as like utilization of an ecological approach, a learner centered approach, and how to apply it in one's own unique, peculiar environment. Uh, that would be one place. Uh, and, the sec-
0: and you have courses because I went yes, and looked at it. yeah Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we they're, they're very reasonable too.
1: Yeah, we have a bunch of different, depending on what someone's entry point is. Mm-hmm. Um, we have very advanced mentorships where mm-hmm. I'm speaking to somebody and, and me and my uh, business partners are speaking to somebody once a week, once every two weeks um, at a very emergent type of fashion, like to them, to all the way down to just courses about agility or courses about a up. Or recently we just put together this course about skilled movement analysis. So oh, okay. um, there, there are some things as oh. to, how I do what I do, and maybe that people will be able to glean uh, information from that. And then I do have football beyond the stats as well, uh, so a website where every given week in the National Football League, I look at one play, and I usually do about a thirty-five to forty-five minute video yeah, about that play, yes, yes. and uh, talk about how it would.
0: Stu um, tweeted one out recently. Yes, ahead, he sorry.
1: actually did give me a little bit of credit. Uh, he does that occasionally. Yeah, uh, and uh, if I can get if I can get Stu McMillan to watch a 45 minute video about American football,
0: I know I'm doing something at least a little, right. I think that's what he said in his tweet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I'm the same, man. If somebody can capture my attention for that long, they've done something very good. So that, and sorry, what's the name of that beyond uh, the it's, stats? It's,
1: it's football beyond the stats football, football beyond yeah, the stats. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. And, and of course, people can find me at, at movement. Yeah, I love that yeah. name. I love <laughs> so that I was, name. It was actually given to me by uh, one of my players, one of my former players. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, and we have that across
0: Twitter and 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 at movement Miyagi, Twitter, and um, god, uh, Instagram.
1: I don't actually have an Instagram, Ah, uh, so I only do tweeting because I um I I like to uh, just put my thoughts and my ideas out there, but at movement Miyagi, and of course, if somebody reaches out to me, I'm more than willing to discuss any of these ideas, so they can feel free to direct message me, um, you know, email me, etc., and I will hopefully be able to at least give them something to think about in some way, maybe that they haven't before.
0: Well, listen, dude, that was fantastic. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Um, and I truly mean that, uh, I would, I would, uh, I've got some cool podcast. I've got some cool podcasts coming up. I have one up already with James Baker. I think he okay. would yep. love to talk there. Mm-hmm. I think you and him would get along real well. He's one of the top LTAD experts in the mm-hmm. world in uh, in qatar and he just messaged me this morning actually him and i are going to talk on wednesday but we're doing oh, nice. another one yeah I, and i think uh him and i yeah maybe it might be good to to get you him and me on to do something on skill for developmental athletes that would be i'm fucking i'm always crazy. game okay all right well listen John, anyways so thanks a lot man um uh, i really appreciate it and uh take care okay and the uh, pleasure is the all mine, my friend there. I'm going to do my best to adapt. All right.
1: (laughs) Thanks.